when you have some degree of success and fame, you know that it it you you know it defines you very much. You know, I'm the drummer in Bauhaus, and we're a great effing band, and and uh, we, you know we're unique and we've broken down barriers, and you know it was so exciting and so great, and just to be and it was so creative and all the rest that goes with it, and then suddenly you know it ends and you're so I think I was a bit kind of head in the clouds. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory. But we drew the map. And so, without further ado, let's welcome back. We were mid-discussion with our good friend Kevin Haskins of uh, Bauhaus, and there's many more besides, but we'll stay with Bauhaus. Anyway, that's precisely what we're talking about, isn't it, Lol? The early days? and Yeah. We're getting to the point of talking about, you know, when you when you start a band and things start to happen and you start to be good and people start to like you and you kind of lose yourself in that kind of situation for a while. Kevin, for you, does that feel, does it ring true, that that notion of uh, losing yourself when you, when you were a young man starting off in the band? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I took on a, a role which in retrospect, was quite subservient. Um, actually, my dad had a Super 8 movie camera, and I filmed some stuff, and I had it digitized um, not long ago, and it was on a European tour, and I I looked like a little baby, you know, and I was kind of, I, you know, I was, must have been uh, like 20 years old, but mm-hmm. I looked like right. I was, you know, six years old and just like, it was a very different person. Um, and, you know, the other guys would, you, they never stopped talking. So I, in the interviews, I would hardly talk at all. You would sit there, you would be the quiet person. Yeah. And one time I did speak up, I was reprimanded and Ooh. I'm actually having a physical reaction to it now. I I read about it in a book. Right. I'm not gonna I don't wanna get too specific. And when I read about that moment it I had this physical reaction and I, I buried it really was very hurtful to me and mm. I buried that. Um and it wasn't until I read it in a in a book somebody wrote um that um that I remembered it and um, yeah, like I, I can very much relate to how, you know, the roles that you take on and fall into mm. <clears throat> and how much you, you know, you'll feel you're allowed to say. And, um, but then I, during the nineties, I think I started to like change and right. become more assertive and um 
very much, and like it's been up to now. I'm, you know, I'm, I know a lot more about <laughs> relationships and you know boundaries and um, and you know what what rights one has uh, in you know in relationships, and so I I can c- conduct myself in. A, different manner now right it's 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 tough because we have the disadvantage or it could be the aid memoir of uh the internet as i've come across okay there's a piece uh mtv used to have this thing called 120 minutes right yeah yeah so the band sits there for two hours (laughs) talking about questions and themselves and what they're doing i sat for 120 minutes without saying a word (laughs) <laughs> I, I have on occasion looked back to see if I do utter anything in 120 minutes. Right. No. And I'm sitting there trying to look nonchalant, uh, not bored, and uh, and anxious and involved um, and intelligent. And like I've got a contribution to make, but I couldn't find a word to add to what was... It was all directed in one direction. And I couldn't really find a way in. Mm. And and it's painful to watch. You're you're very eloquent. You're a very eloquent chap with a good command of English language. Yeah. Do you uh, do you know why you you felt that way or it well it's because I can only put it down to that day I was feeling particularly, uh, I, I wouldn't say out of sorts. I didn't look like I was worse for wear, absolutely. And, and you would never see me that way because if I was feeling bad, I would look better than anybody. <laughs> Make sure <laughs> that when I appeared, I wouldn't be wearing black shades like Ray-Ban wafers. Uh-huh. I'd have the eyes on show, you know. I'd be, I'd be really smartly dressed uh, in some kind of suit that I'd picked up. And that was a good outward sign that inwardly I was feeling like a little shaky. <laughs> um, and sometimes I'd just be really, I get like sc- like screen fright, like camera shy. Mm. You get very mm. self-conscious. And it just, the, the only thoughts going through my mind were nothing to do with what was being said in this discussion or question and answer session. It would just be, have I got my best side? Do I look okay? Do you think people will know that my leg is shaking? Oh, <laughs> it right. was, it was right. non- nonsense. And I've, so you have that extreme. And then I see a younger version of me backstage at the uh, Paradiso in Amsterdam with John McGeer and Severin post-gig. Susie's being very kind of... Somehow she's just... It's, it's all the answers to the, to the questions being at her. She's like batten them away as insignificant she's being very cynical and it's very humorous mm. and I look like somebody and I'm walking around going somebody just like burst the tyres in our van I'm going to get them oh yeah I've seen that one Yeah, I'm thinking who is that, yeah. is that? And, and, and Severin and McGeeock are kind of really mellow in the background and really not mm. speaking and very kind of understated and so I see two different me's mm. from two different parts of my role in that band. Mm. And it's really freaky, you know, to... I don't recognise either of those two characters, and they're both me. Yeah. 
And yeah. you know that uh, there's some recordings of, of the last Banshee shows. Yeah. And I would be scared to look at them thinking, God, I must have played like so badly, you know. <laughs> I must have been, because that was that was like the pits for me. Right. And there I am on stage in Sao Paulo, or maybe it was in uh, Buenos Aires, because we went down to Argentina. Yeah. Just before we left for go back to England, and I was at the top of my game. Uh, I, there was not a beat dropped. It was my kit. We'd taken my drums all that way. We used to, mm. so we we did it correctly. And my mind would tell me it must have been bad. And I'm looking at it almost in disbelief, thinking, wow, well, we'd been gigging a long time and I'd been in that position for a long time. So isn't it funny? It's that I can actually see, we can see ourselves and not really recognize ourselves. And we can see the truth and yes. not really believe it. Yes. What is the truth what is it? It's, it seems it all it's all conditional on how we feel when we talk about it or view it yeah mm -hmm. well i mean you you've hit the nail on the head there because i recognize myself in that 100 percent. what you just said because it's uh you know we we've all been in bands where we've had very uh charismatic powerful front people you know and when you start off, everybody's all doing the same thing together and we're all in it together. But then gradually over time, you know, the press and the audience and the way things go and just the way people think about front people anyway, it tends to to change relationships in a way that's not always beneficial. And then, you know, because we're with each other 24-7 in a situation like that, we start to take some of that on board and, and it becomes... Uh, you know, I used to wonder why bands, you know, at the top of their game would break up or things would go wrong and that. And I understand now completely why, because uh, it's a very unreal situation to put most people in, especially at a point where uh, you're maturing as, as a human being. But when we were going through those changes, uh, we didn't have the benefits of... <laughs> therapy or uh you know any kinds of other understanding we were just like oh my god i got to get on with it and do whatever i can mm. to to survive and the really good thing about being a little older and being able to reflect back and and write about it is you see the truth you see the truth you you absolutely see it for what it is and you have to be authentic because i had a lot of uh uh, for want of a better word, angst about the, the whole of my 20s and what went on and how it went on. And um, yeah. I don't anymore. No. I don't. It's free. And I mean, you know, this, just this here, the three of us sitting here chatting about it is an example of why it works because uh, it, it's open, it's vulnerable, but it's also the truth, you know, and uh, that's what we need. It will set you free. The audience can see it as well, as you say. They'll sniff it out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they, they'll still sense what's going on on that stage, no matter how we try to disguise it. <laughs> if somebody's having a bad night, the audience goes, that, whoever it may be, they, they're in a funny mood. There's something weird going on there. Right. 
how did how did your role affect? Because you're, you're you're still back. I mean, you don't have to go into what how things are today, but there was certain points where you were saying in in your band, Kevin, you 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 adopted a certain role, a subservient role. You said was was mm-hmm. there other characters you became as well? I think I was. I mean, when I saw this Super Eight footage, I I was very surprised at how you know, like I said, just I just looked like a little kid and was acting like one, and um, and I had a pretty kind of closeted—is that the word? Upbringing. Like right. My wife will tell me about things you know she was doing at twelve and fifteen, and mm. and I was like, you know, in my my world, I like it would be shocking, you know, to, uh, be doing such things. Um, I don't want to throw my wife. <laughs> well, just normal. Is it, it suffice, to, suffice to say what was normal in California was not normal in, uh, Northwest yeah. or Northeast or yeah. South England yeah. at the time. Right. 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 I can understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like a different planet. My parents ultra conservative and, and so on. So I, you know, I think I was, you know, I had very sheltered upbringing. So, I was thrown into this, you know, rock and roll <laughs> lifestyle. It, you know, it was great. It was, you know, it was amazing fun. You know, when we were at that age, you know, it was like yeah. being in a gang and you right. you were all, and we had a lot of, we were slagged off by the music press. Like, like we, it, was, it was vicious and it was uh, really terrible you know right (laughs) so that made us kind of have our backs to the wall and we're like you know we'll we're going to make it and we'll show them and yeah it gave us that kind of attitude so it really kind of pulled us all together so you're you're like this gang but within that gang i'm i you know when the when the split of the band came up with bar house the first time around or you know after we'd done four albums i i didn't see it coming at all Right. It was pretty much a complete shock to me. Mm. But, you know, the rest of the guys, it, you know, this thing had been brewing and very much in their, you know, front of their minds. And um, and I remember we had a meeting at a rehearsal room and it was just to kind of split up. And I was driving <coughs> back. My brother was, I was giving him a lift on vice versa. And it was like, oh, thank God, I'm so relieved. And uh, and I was just like thinking the exact opposite. I was just like in shock and like, what am I going to do now? And I can't believe this has happened. And because you know, it, it defined my whole, you know. And that's another thing when you have some uh, degree of success and fame, mm. you know, that it de- it you you know it defines you very mm-hmm. much you know i'm right. the drama in Bauhaus and we're a great effing band and right. and uh, we, you know we're unique and we've broken down barriers and you know it was so exciting and so great and just right to be and it was so creative and all the rest that goes with it and then suddenly you know it ends and you're like so i think i was a bit kind of head in the clouds Do you, do you do you look back and think of yourself as I certainly did the court jester? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. 
Lol, yeah, do you, yeah. did you? Did, it's 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 it, okay. Let me, let, let me throw a theory out. It's just come to me. I've not been thinking about this, but I wonder: is it me that decided to be the court jester? Because I I see an instance that I just cited when I was mm-hmm. the one who was the like pretty serious, right. a serious young man. Right. I've seen early footage of you, Lol, with yeah. Simon and Robert. Right. Where, when asked a question to the three of you, you were the one who was most determined to give a succinct answer to that question, right. whilst the other two were kind of going, guys, an idiot. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they were being like children, and you were like carrying the mantle. And I'm thinking, well, that's no court jester role. But was it was it a, a role that was then devised in a way out of your own natural exuberance and playfulness? And our role as drummers mm. is to blend and listen to everybody and make sure we sound like a, a band. I don't know. Is there yeah. is there kind of a, a commonality between the thinking that drummers need to have and think of? Keith Moon, Colt Jester, yeah. John Bonham, good drinker. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's true. I think also here's here's the other part of it because you you pointed it out very much. Um, a lot of the times when uh, you know that spotlight is put on people. Um, it it can make them uncomfortable, so therefore um, they they look to diffuse it with humour. But then the humour becomes not quite so funny, and then it becomes a little bit more regimented and a little bit, you know, uh, destructive. Because it was in in the case of the cure for sure, it became quite destructive. And um, that sounds like you mean the court jester, if you like, becomes the becomes becomes the scapegoat. Absolutely, absolutely. And and the the thing that happened was, yeah, you know, there's lots of things. If I look at it, that I I know that uh, you know I know my part in things, but I also know that at, at certain point, yes, the scapegoat thing, not a great idea for most people anyway, because you know the idea of the scapegoat as soon as you're driven out you imagine that all the problems are going to go and that certainly didn't happen. That certainly didn't happen. You know, like Mm. problems were still there, but just, you know, they they have to have a different focus at that point. So, uh, I think now knowing what I know that it would be a completely different kind of reaction to things. And, um, (laughs) it would be a lot more loving, but we were, we were very young guys who didn't really know how to deal with anything you know, least what was going on with us success wise and that. And so it just became, it became like Lord of the Flies, you know, and it wasn't really that great. I always think when you think about, you know, the, the court jester part, it's like, you know, in Shakespeare, like with King Lear, right. And King Lear's on, mm. on the moor at night, you know, going nuts. Right. And the jester, the fool is there with him. But if you read into it all in the end, it's like, you know, the fool is really just this other side of King Lear. You know, it's like his other personality and, and it's the yin and yang, you know, without getting too airy fairy, but it's, it's the balance of things, you know, and a band like everything else needs a balance, I guess, you know, but the balance gets thrown out because, um, it's like 
One of Robert's favorite books was was Cocteau's Les Enfants Terribles, you know, with the three of them stuck in this room forever and ever and ever. And uh, yeah. it, it doesn't end well in the book, and it certainly doesn't end well if you put that into, you know, a band situation. It's very unnatural, in other words, the band. It's very, very, very like a band, actually. That is yeah. like to, with, with a very, uh, very much a kind of almost incestuous and privilege. Yeah. And uh, and then they turn it on one person. Yes. Yeah. Very much like Lord of the Flies and P- old poor Piggy gets yeah pushed off the cliff, the brunt of everything. Right. Yeah. Who and who were you rooting for, Piggy? Yeah. Finding this really beneficial for my memoir because I guess, you know, there's places you don't really want to go back to and feelings you don't want to dig up again. And this is (laughs) starting to bring up, you know, a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling and, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because it's going to make me like dig a bit deeper than I wouldn't even consider doing. Right. Um, but I think that's that's what one um, needs to be doing. Um, it's, it's what's required. It's what's required yeah. to set yourself free. You know, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Understand that. Yeah. Um, were you? Were you um, there was another role I like, I remembered I took on was like the peacekeeper. Oh. Uh, I was like you know the youngest. I was kind of an easy target because of that. And I took on the role of like the, the jesto, and um, I would do funny things. I, you know, I thought, well, it's my job to be entertain and make people laugh. Um, but but I was also a peacekeeper. I would be Diffuse. like you know, neutral territory. Mm. Um, were, were you guys? Was that the same with you, or can you relate to that? Um, I was the, the bomb disposal specialist <laughs> <laughs> to defuse the situation with least collateral damage. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I was any good at it. But yeah, it, it wasn't, I didn't have to particularly side in any way but but that was my natural inclination was to bring things together that's why i I mentioned Mm. the role as our role as drummers Mm. Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of giving sub you know giving a a firm footing for the vocalist whilst taking into consideration the bass player's lack of desire to do the same thing you know yeah. or wanting to but not able to and the, and, right. and making sure the guitarist sounds great even though they're nowhere near us you know it's right. kind of right. you're pulling all mm-hmm. these elements together uh, and that requires empathy with everybody yes uh whilst maintaining a surety of what my role is um and it and it fluctuates yeah, no, absolutely. I I agree with that. I mean, I I I'm absolutely certain, and I don't say this out of any uh, pomposity or anything, but without um, my various uh, ministries, I guess, to various people, and that the band would have fallen apart several times completely, and not 
you know, returned in any shape or form. And uh, so, yeah, I was good at keeping things together for people. You know, I didn't really have a, a relationship of any uh, import with my father, you know. And so when the band started, that was like my, not my dad, but it was my family. It became my family, you know. And I was, compl- it was like, yeah. it's like, you know, you see young guys that go into gangs, you know, that don't have, you know, families or whatever and that and they that becomes their their family and so it was definitely you know the cure was my family so in that way you know most families have uh people in the families occupy different roles and uh a band is no different but i actually feel that by uh writing it all down and reliving some of it and understanding it it is is uh the sort of it's, it's not brave because you know brave brave is people going down a coal mine you know but um and i couldn't do that but um Mm-mm. you know it that was the option we had yeah, yeah. i remember <laughs> yeah. yeah my right. my school days were like what are you going to do work in the glass factory or go down the pit right oh geez yeah right. i mean it's it's uh it's about in the end you know what is it? I, I was trying to find this quote last night because uh, somebody reminded me of it about Allen Ginsberg, you know, like, hey, you know, life's not the journey, it's the trip, right? It is the trip, you know, you got to, uh, you got to get in to understanding, you know, like, and, and what was the other one he said about getting in with the moonshine, letting the madness out? I, I've horribly mangled that quote, but it's, uh, you get the idea. <sighs> it's about, you know, don't hide who you are because this is the chance we get to be who we are you know and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's valid you know it's like that whole thing the the imposter syndrome you know you start to feel that you're somehow you weren't supposed to be who you are which is kind of nonsense if you think about it you know of course we were supposed to be who we are I did film and TV scoring for like 10 years. You know, I had some notable moments and I joined up with a guy, Doug DeAngelis, and we, we worked as a team and did, did some, you know, few notable things. But one, after a while, we went separate ways because I was doing Bauhaus again. And, and um, I got to score this film. And in, uh, you know, when you start, film you have a spotting session where you sit with the director and producers and you look at the film and you decide where music's needed and why it's needed mm. and at, at the end the director said yeah you know I'm, I'm really feeling now I'm really feeling that this needs a big orchestral score and inside I, I, I learned quite quickly that you, you don't really if you, if you have any negative thoughts you don't verbalize them Right. Um, you're like you always say yeah I can do that and then you figure it out so I I didn't say anything and I got back to my studio and I was just like what the hell am I going to do and I was pacing around my studio for a couple of hours and freaking out and then the word delegate came into my head so I called up a friend of a friend and he introduced me to a cello player and he introduced me to an orchestrator and this guy and I met with him and and he you know so I, I started writing stuff as best I could 
and I was just in the deep end and I, I was, you know, it's, it's way out of my depth. And, um, as we went along, I decided to give the orchestrator, I said, do you want to just score this with me? Uh, and, um, you know, of course he was over the moon and he said, yeah, yeah. Well, like, we'll just take an equal credit credit <clears throat> and you take on the heavy work, you know? Right. So at the end we, we had the my you know my scenes written out and you know, like on these huge um, long pieces of notation paper with right. everything written out you know and and I went along to the recording session and um, and I, I felt like an imposter and then the orchestrator said it's customary for you to come in and be introduced to the orchestra so I went <laughs> in the studio it's like. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kevin Haskins. He's the composer on the film. And uh, they all clapped. And at that point, I felt like the biggest imposter in the world. Like, mm-hmm. like if they only knew, I thought. So I just kind of played along like I was in this weird dream or movie and <laughs> that I'd been plonging. And so when they started playing, I was like, I could count bars. Right. So I was just counting the bars. And I did hear one mistake with the cellos. I thought I, somebody slipped up there and I, it was like bar 89 or something. So they got through it and I they said everything, cause it, it was like everything. Okay. And I'd be usually like, yeah, I guess. And I was like, could we go to bar 89? Cause I, and there was a little error. Wow. I, I felt so proud of myself. I was like, okay. That felt me, made me feel a little bit better. Yeah. I, Did you see you know, the cellist afterwards and say, thanks for messing up on bar 89? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to ask was, was the next day, did did you walk in with, you know, a cape on and a, a stick and a hat and stuff, you know, the composer? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic. Lovely. Well, it's been very nice and very good. Yeah. Good stuff. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official. Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.